Well, good morning, everyone. And there's the lights. There we go. How are we doing this morning? Good. My name is Tim Porter, one of the pastors for Faith Community Church. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, before we step into the teaching time this morning, I just have two things I'd like to say by way of announcement and uh, promotion. One is, uh, hopefully, if you are here and you um, dropped off your kids for Faith Kids or Faith Littles, you were able to navigate um, the new systems that we have here for check-in. And so thank you for uh, your patience as we did that. Thank you for the hospitality team. And what I'd like to do this morning is that there's a bunch of teachers and volunteers who are investing a lot in, uh, of time this morning. And uh, would we just clap for them and so they can say, hey, what are you guys clapping about? Right? As Shannon said in our welcome time, we're really excited to see what God's going to do here uh, in Faith Kids and Faith Littles on Sunday morning. Uh, the other uh, is, is on October 6th, Thursday night, October 6th at 6.30, <clears throat> I'm going to be facilitating and help lead a course we call uh, Christianity Explored. And it's a course for anybody here at Faith Community or a visitor or a friend uh, or a neighbor that you might know that is someone who's maybe seeking and wanting to know a little bit more about who Jesus is. This is a great course to come to. Or if you're just getting connected to Faith Community Church and, you know, you've been a part of the worship gathering, you're like, hey, what's this church like and uh, what are the people like? We would love to host you uh, at Christianity Explored as well. It's a seven-week course with an excellent meal, an excellent meal, great discussion around the table where we're answering three questions together. Who was Jesus? What did he do? And why does it matter for me? It's very personal and uh, a very personal space where you can just explore who Jesus is. And the best part, too, is that skeptics, if you have any skepticism or any kind of questions that you might have about Jesus or Christianity, this is a great place to bring your questions. There is no question that you cannot ask at, um, at Christianity Explored. And the best part is one of my friends named Tom, uh, he has all the answers. So uh, if you're wondering about that, yes, he does, and he will help you. So um, uh, you, you can register today online, fcchudson.com for that course. Okay. We are in a series called The Dreamer, and I am so glad that this uh, story of Joseph is in the Bible because uh, we're learning about what it's like, what God is like, and what we can do when all of our dreams might become nightmares. And where's God in the midst of that? And what can we trust in with God in those circumstances? Joseph's life begins with a dream in a sense. He's 17 years old and he gets a dream from God that it seems like everything's gonna go right for him in the world and then everything starts to fall apart. And today, we're going to be looking at two temptations that we have as human beings, two temptations that we have as human beings, and how the scriptures and the story of Joseph and knowing God helps us overcome these temptations. The two temptations are the sexual temptation. All the kids are in faith kids, right? So we'll talk about sex for a while. And though the faithfulness temptation. What happens when we're faithful and things don't turn out the way we thought they would? There's a temptation there that Joseph helps us with, God helps us with. So today we're learning from Genesis 39, verse 6b, the second part of verse 6, 
through 21, verse 21. It's found on page 33 in the Bible's in front of you, if you'd like to read along there, or you can use your Bible app as well, or your own Bible. But I recommend having that available. Verse 6b. Now Joseph was a handsome, was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had fled, had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See? He has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and he fled out of the house. Now, as soon as his master heard the words from that, that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Rightly. My comment, sorry. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, confined and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you're new to reading the Bible or you're new even to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And the book of Genesis is really quite fascinating because it starts out with God on display, creating and speaking. Speaking. He's, his voice is raised and worlds are created and ground appears and humans are formed just simply by him speaking. He, he speaks one to one with people. Angels are showing up at times and there's all this kind of supernatural activity. But then when we get to the Joseph story, it's interesting. God's mentioned, but he's not a key player in the scene. He's not a key player in the story, at least not on the surface. He's, he's hidden. It's more like life today for us. 
We have to see God in the midst of things, knowing him through what he told us in Scripture, to see him at work around us. Rarely will a person get a vision of God. But every day, God is working around us. Do we see him? Do we see him? Now, in this story, we've got, as I said, two temptations. One's the sexual temptation. The other is the faithfulness temptation. And just again, a bit of the story just to catch up. God has a dream for Joseph. God gave that dream to Joseph that his family, his mom and his dad, his brothers and his family would all bow down to him. And God has a vision for what Joseph's going to do and when that's going to come to pass and be fulfilled. It's going to be in the midst of a, of a famine when Joseph is able to save his family and not just save his family, but save the Egyptians. Tens of thousands of people are going to be saved through Joseph. And God is bringing Joseph along through injustices, through traumas, to shape him into the kind of man who will be able to save tens of thousands of people one day. But Joseph doesn't know what we know. Joseph's got a vision. He's got a dream for his life that he knows that God gave to him. And every time we start to see Joseph tired of taking, everything seems to be going well for him. Something happens that's absolutely devastating. His dreams become nightmares. After the dream that God gave to Joseph, and he started, Joseph started to tell his family, his brothers about that dream, his brothers hated him and trafficked him, sold him into slavery. And now we see here that the Lord is with Joseph, and Joseph is able to do a lot. He's he's successful in maintaining and managing and administrating in the house of Potiphar, who's the captain of the guard, one of the most powerful men in Egypt and one of the most powerful um, nations at the time. Things are going well for him. The Lord is with him. The promise that was given to Joseph's great-great-grandfather that God would bless this line so that they could be a blessing for others. God's being true to that. Joseph is blessing, bringing good into the home of his slave master. And then things start to go sideways again. He ends up in a very painful situation. But before, we start, before that happens, we start to see his character emerge. Temptation. Verses 6 and 7. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. In other words, he, he looked really good, probably had a beard. And <laughs> he was well built. Unlike me, but the beard compensates for something. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time of watching, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast her eye upon Joseph and said, lie with me. Now this isn't so much seduction. There is seduction that's going on in this passage. 
This is a mixture of sort of two temptations. There's two plays going on here. There's the sexual play, the allure, but there's also a power play. There's a power dynamic going on here. This is a woman who is married to one of the most powerful men in Egypt. And she can have anything that she wants. And the statement here, lie with me, is not so much an alluring, hey, come sleep with me. It's a command. Sleep with me. I own you. My husband owns you. You're my property. You do what I tell you to do. Now, Joseph, no doubt, is experiencing a lot of temptation in this. On one hand, where does he go? If he goes to talk to Potiphar, is he going to believe him? Hey, your wife's telling me to sleep with her. What kind of dynamic does that introduce into the relationship? Who does he talk to about this? He withstands that pressure. But also there's the pleasure temptation as well. Maybe, maybe God has me here to experience some pleasure in the midst of this household. And God's provided a wonderful opportunity for me to do that. This story, in one sense, is the making of romance novels. Maybe a little light and goodness and joy in the midst of hard circumstances. But Joseph resists that too. Maybe too, part of the temptation for Joseph was that, hey, maybe if I do sleep with her, then I've got something on her. And I can use that to my advantage and maybe get out from under slavery to Potiphar. We don't know what the temptations were, but we know that power and sexuality were both there. And the amazing thing, the amazing thing is that Joseph keeps saying no. Not just no once, but he keeps saying no. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her to be with her. Day after day. Now, it's one thing to resist the temptation in a moment, and then you can, like, get out of the circumstances, you know? You're in that moment where uh, you could say something of gossip and slander somebody and maybe feel like an insider in that moment by giving some gossip about somebody, and you resist. You say, no, I'm not going to do that, and then you leave that situation, and thankfully it doesn't come up again. But this is day after day after day after day after day. Lie with me. Lie with me. Lie with me. And then, at a time when the circumstances were the best for him to give in, because everybody's out of the house, he's all alone, he still doesn't give in. Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in his hand and he fled and got out of the house. Now, two questions. Two questions. One is, how did Joseph do this? Because I don't know about you, but I don't know if I could. How did Joseph resist? But then the other question, 
that's tied to it is, is it a good thing that he resisted? And I ask that question because, quite frankly, we live in a culture where, well, sleep with her. You're a slave. Get some pleasure. Use this against her. Sleep with her. What kind of counsel would we give as a culture to Joseph in this circumstance? We get a little hint. We get a little hint, not a little hint. We get a pretty big hint of how Joseph resisted day after day after day. And even when the circumstances seemed the most favorable for him to obey this command and not have any consequences to it, when everybody's out of the house, Joseph says this to her when she first commands him to sleep with her. Verse 9, he, that is Potiphar, is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except for you. And then here we go, because you are his wife. He's not let me. I don't have permission to sleep with you because you're his wife. And then even more, this is a really big statement we're going to spend some time on here. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So the reason why Joseph is able to resist is personally, internally, he sees what she's telling him to do as a great wickedness and sin against a personal God who is with him, that he knows is with him, even in the deepest, darkest traumas of his life. He knows that God is with him, and he says, I cannot sin against God in this way. It's too offensive to the God who loves me. Now, why? Why is this so offensive to God? It's not because God hates sex. God likes sex. He thought it up. It's because God has so wed together, pun intended, covenant love within a marriage relationship between one man and one woman and sexual satisfaction and fulfillment. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. Although at the beginning of Genesis, we read this. This is when God brings man, Adam, and woman, Eve, together. The first wedding was an arranged wedding. God's arranging it. And this is how Adam responds. This is not just a love poem. This is an oath that he makes. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall, become, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Joseph knows something about sexuality. And he knows something about marriage because he knows something about the God who's with him. And that sexuality and marriage, covenant love, go together. A woman named Julie Slattery, Dr. Julie Slattery, has written a book 
called God, Sex, and Your Marriage. It's an amazing book. Very, very helpful book. It's all about experiencing the kind of intimacy that God has designed marriage and sexuality for. She talks about how one day her son asked her, Mom, where in the Bible does it say that we shouldn't have sex before marriage or outside of marriage? Where does it say that? Is there a command about that? And she reflects. She said, I could have explained the words in the Bible like fornication or sexual immorality that in and of themselves mean that, that that sex, any, any kind of sexual activity outside of a covenant marriage is sinful. That's what those words mean. But instead of focusing on that, she says, I tried to tell my son the story, God's story about sex and what God intends by it. And this is something really important for the church because the church, in one sense, has basically told two messages. Sex outside of marriage is bad and sex in marriage is a gift. And then on your wedding night, you're like, huh, something that was bad is about to be really good. How does this work? And one of the things that's missing, I think, at times in the church is God's vision of the beauty and power of sexuality and sex in marriage. So I want to give just a little story about it. Just a little story about it. Why? Because quite frankly, quite frankly, even though our culture right now is obsessed with sex, we have such a low, 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 abysmally low view of sex. Our culture puts a lot of emphasis on great sex, but it actually, to quote Dr. Slattery, it misses the beauty of a far deeper intimacy that sex and marriage calls us to pursue. Our culture's greatest fault is not in that it overpromises on sex. Hear this. The culture's greatest fault is not that it overpromises on sex, but that it underpromises sex. Right now, increasingly, sex is increasingly seen as a pleasurable and important part of self-fulfillment. But the Bible's view is so much richer, far more joyful, far more personal, far more satisfying and far more difficult. We have a book in the Bible, if you don't know this, we have a book in the Bible called The Song of Songs, and it's, it's a book that's erotic poetry dedicated, dedicated to the beauty and power of sexual intimacy within marriage. God created sex and God created marriage the two go together. The two go together. Why? Because God designed them, both the institution of marriage and also the act of sex, to go within marriage as a way of showing what his love is like. That's why God cares so much about it. He doesn't want us lying to each other about the power of his love. See, we get sex wrong typically because we get love wrong. God didn't create sex primarily to teach us about romantic love or passion or even unselfishness, as good as those things are and as important as those are. 
but he gave us marriage and sexuality to teach us about his covenant love. We're going to see this just in a little bit in this passage that after Joseph is thrown into prison, it says that the Lord was with him. The steadfast love of the Lord was with him. God's covenant love, or as Tim Prince introduced to us back in the Hosea series and before that, his chesed, his chesed, his steadfast, personal, persistent love for us that is all based in promise and grace that he will never, ever, ever, ever let us go. At the core of a marriage is covenant love. And covenant love is a mixture of a a promise that is held together and uh, we're accountable legally for that promise. But it's far bigger and far more richer than simply a legal contract and a piece of paper. Tim Keller writes this in his book, Meaning of Marriage, the, the solemn, permanent, whole self-giving of two parties to each other. It's a stunning blend of both law and love, a relationship much more intimate and loving than a mere legal contract could create, yet one more enduring and binding than personal affection alone could make. Another author says, in in marriage generally, we choose to love one another as long as we're meeting each other's needs. Covenant love flips this around in its head. We meet each other's needs because we've chosen, promised, promised to love. Whenever I do a wedding, I always tell the couple, like, you can, you can do your own vows. Your own vows are awesome. You can, you can write your own vows, but I'm also going to read certain vows for you that you agreed to. And one of the reasons is, is that often... When you hear, if you did this, this is great, but when you hear, when you hear somebody write their own vows, they're usually talking about how, oh, I love you so much, you're my best friend, and yada, yada, yada. Although, I mean, that's really good, right? But it's all about like this present love. We all assume at a wedding that you really like each other or you wouldn't be there. (laughs) But vows are all about the future. I will do this in sickness and in health. There's only one thing that's going to separate me from you, and that's death. Those are the vows that bind people together. And that's the only kind of relationship where sexuality can be fully expressed and have it be the way that God has intended it to grow to be. Sex and marriage go together because sex is the physical symbol of a lifelong covenant promise. It's how, we, it's how we celebrate and remember with our bodies what we have chosen to do with our entire lives. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. We can't see sex as anything less than that. So according to the Bible, one author says, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place for security and vulnerability and intimacy to grow. Parents, let's cast visions like that for the next generation. 
Let's not be shy about talking about the beauty and the power of God's story of sex. Because that helps us be inspired to say yes to Jesus in the midst of temptation. See, again, Joseph knows that what Potiphar's wife is asking him to do would be a deep offense against the God who is with him always, even in the midst of his greatest traumas. And he does not want to violate that because he had a vision for it. I don't know about you, but when I read about God's vision for sex, and again, I highly recommend Dr. Julie Slatter's book, God, Sex, and Your Marriage. But when I read that, in one sense, I get really inspired. So I think, oh, there's so much more for my marriage than what I settle on at times and what the culture's telling me to go after. There's so much more. But I also, quite frankly, feel really sad because there's just so much sexual brokenness around us, in us, in me. I told this story before, but many of you know this, but I grew up, I grew up in a home where, quite frankly, pornography was expected, encouraged, and almost ever-presently accessible. And God has been rewriting what to expect and what to cherish and what to delight in by his story of sex. But it's hard. And one of the good news about the Bible, some of the good news about the Bible is that Jesus did not just come. Jesus did not just come to give us a a sense of the story of God's view of sex so that we can be inspired to live Jesus' way and say no to temptation. He also came to help heal the brokenness that every human being has with regard to sexuality. That brokenness could be things that we've done, things that have been done to us, pain in sexuality, physical pain, maybe embarrassment, shame. Our bodies get older and they don't work the way they should. Jesus has come to heal that. In a passage in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is talking about marriage and he's talking and he's quoting from Genesis 2, the passage that we just looked at, he talks this way. He says, husbands, love your wives as, hear this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present her, the church, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus wants to heal and cleanse us. That's why he's come. We're no longer as afraid. We're no longer slaves to fear. No longer need to live in shame. Jesus has come. Now Joseph, 
resists a very powerful temptation. It's a temptation that's all around us. But he also has to endure another very powerful temptation that most of us probably will experience at some point in time in our lives too. And that's what happens when you do everything right and everything goes wrong. Now we have to be a little bit sympathetic, maybe, to understand what's going on with Potiphar's wife. She doesn't have God's ethic on sexuality. Maybe she sees Joseph as just somebody to use. But then Joseph resists. He runs out of there. Maybe that's never happened to her before. Maybe she slept with some of the other servants in the household. We don't know. We just don't know. But she's left with two options. I want to go tell my husband this is what I did, highly unlikely, or I'm going to blame the righteous man and tell my husband what he did. That's a lie. And that's what she does. Verse 19. As soon as the master of the heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. Hear the echoes of Eve anyway. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, to the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, in one sense, there's grace in this. There's grace in this because, quite frankly, from what we know of Egyptian law and even ancient laws in the ancient Near East, if you sleep with another man's wife, you should be killed. He was thrown in prison. Possibly Potiphar doesn't fully believe his wife. Possibly he sees and sees and he wants to repay the favor that Joseph has brought into the household because he's been such a good servant and the Lord has blessed him. We don't know. We don't know the motivation. But there is grace here. He's not killed. He's thrown into prison. But imagine what it would be like when you do everything right. He resists and everything goes wrong. I don't know if you've ever had this question before. Maybe you've talked to somebody with this kind of question. They say to you, you know what? I've tried Jesus. I tried Jesus. I tried following him. I tried, obeyed. I tried obeying him. It just didn't work. I'm glad it works for you, but it just didn't work for me. If you're ever in a conversation like that, this is one of my follow-up questions as much as I possibly can. If the context allows, I say, so what did you expect Jesus would do for you if you followed him? And what happened instead? What you'll hear typically is pain. I trusted Jesus because I thought he would save my marriage. And my marriage fell apart. Joseph is in a spot. He's in a spot where he did everything right and everything fell apart. And the temptation is, and especially we've got to be careful about how we talk as Christians about following God. The temptation is this. If I obey, God will bless me. That's one of the temptations that's going on in the book of Job, runs all the way through. Satan comes to God, hey God, Job is a great guy, but does he serve you for anything? I mean, does he serve you for nothing? I mean, look at how you've protected him. Take away everything he has, he'll curse you and die. What Joseph is learning in this spot is that God is enough. See, one of the temptations that comes to us, we don't see it until something bad happens to us. It's there at times. It's part of our narrative 
that God, if I trust you, you'll give this to me. And what God reveals to us in our hearts when we go through difficulty, when we've been faithful to him, is that was I trusting God just simply to get what I really want rather than just to have God? It's always there. If we're obeying God to get something from him in return, then that something is really what we're worshiping. And God's a means to the end. Now, how do we overcome that temptation? A couple things as we close. First, we see this, that the Lord was with Joseph even in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. There's a really important principle here, a really important principle here. I tend to think that if the steadfast love of the Lord is for me and committed to me, then I will be blessed in life. Things will go well. I'll avoid difficulty. What Joseph is teaching me is that when the steadfast love of the Lord is committed to me, all hell might break loose in my life. But the steadfast love of the Lord enables me to be a blessing to others. It's a very different way of looking at life. A gospel-inspired life is not so much of trying to use Jesus to get the life that we want. It's living the life that he gives us, seeking to do as much good and serve the other people around us, to be a blessing to others. Notice that in the passage, verse 21. How did everybody know that the steadfast love of the Lord was with Joseph? Everybody else around him was blessed. That's amazing. Some of you know the story of Corey Ten Boom and Betsy Ten Boom. The Hiding Place is a great book. They weren't spared the Holocaust. They weren't spared death camps. The steadfast love of the Lord was with Betsy and with Corey in the death camps in Ravensbrook. And how do we know? Where they lived was transformed by the gospel. Generosity, sharing, caring for one another. Everybody else around them was blessed as the Lord was with them. How do we resist the temptation that when all life goes apart, when we've seemingly been faithful to God, say, okay, God, we grieve, we're sad. We don't just get a stiff upper lip and endure it. We grieve it. And we seek to see around us who can we bless? Who can we serve? Who can we see get to know God who is with us and not just try to have the life that we want to have? Joseph was in a circumstance where an unrighteous person, Potiphar's wife, accused a righteous man, and he was punished for her unrighteousness. You see that? Who does that sound like? Joseph is being shaped into the image of Jesus because one day Jesus is going to come, and we read this later on from the Apostle Paul, for our sake, 
God, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A righteous person was punished for our sin. That's the heart of God. How do we resist temptation when everything's falling apart? When we've been faithful, we recognize over and over and over again that the heart of God is that I have sinned. And Jesus was blamed for my sin, that I could become the righteousness of God. I could be healed and forgiven for any kind of sexuality sin and any kind of idolatry and turning away from him and using God can be forgiven because Jesus, the righteous one, was treated as unrighteousness that we could become the righteousness of God. Would you please stand? I want to pray for us, and we'll sing one more song together. Father, thank you for the story of Joseph, and not just the story of Joseph for him, but also what it reveals about what he reveals, about your heart and your goodness. Help us to resist temptations that you come to us because we are aligned and hear and feel and delight in your goodness. Thank you, God. Thank you that you walk with us no matter what, no matter where.